0: Okay, so let's get on our way. As you know, I I was telling you about Marty and I, uh, this August we will be married 41 years. And we have our three boys, like I say, our oldest one. Thank you. Our oldest son, he took over our ministry. When Marty had his stroke, we ministered, we, well, I'll get into that later. But he took over that for us, and our, uh, our oldest twin, he is in special forces. I can't say what, but he's in special forces in the military, let me say, and our old, his twin brothers in advertising in San Antonio. Okay, we all have a story to tell, all of us. We've been through things. You're either in the middle of your journey, you're coming out of your journey, or you're going into your journey. But we all have a story to tell. It may be different than mine, it's different from someone else's. We all have the t-shirt that says, been there, done that, don't want to do it again. You know, it's like, I can't do this again. But we all have a story, and it's all been a battle. And when you're in a battle, what do you do? Do you run and turn? Do you just roll over and let happen what may happen, okay, s'ra, s'ra? Or do you put on your full armor and fight with the heavenly host by your side? That's what we chose to do. First Samuel 34 says, "This is when David came back to his town, to his city and all his women, the children, the animals, the men. Nothing was killed. They took the Amorites, they took everybody, they took everybody away from him. And when Dave, this is Marty's favorite, if you're a TVI, he used to this was one of his favorite stories. He loves, loves David. But this is one of his stories that he loves, and it says... David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. So did David give up and say, I have no strength left to weep. I'm just going to lay down and let what happened happen, and I'll go on with my life. No, he chose to fight. He had to encourage himself in the Lord. He said, I'm taking back what is mine. There have been many, many, many times that I felt like David. I felt like I wept a river of tears where I felt like, how can one person have so many tears in them? How can you weep so much? But in Psalms 56:8 it says, You keep track of my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one of them in your book. Even in the middle of your crying, your river of tears, you must fight. You're much stronger than you think you are. We all think we're weak and insignificant, but when the battle comes, you have to rise up. You have to take your sword and fight. You can't lay down and let the enemy run over you. So never let him tell you those lies. Ephesians 6:10 through 18 says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and mighty in power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take up your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers, of the darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when, not if, but when, meaning it is coming, or you've been through it, or it, you're in the middle, coming out somewhere, but when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, stand firm. Then with your belt of truth buckled around your waist and your breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the righteousness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. You have to put on your whole armor, not half your armor, not just your helmet, not just your shield, not your flip flops and your Bermuda shorts. You have to put on your armor when the evil comes, when something comes into your life. You don't have a choice. No one else is gonna do it for you. You have to fight. Everyone wants everybody else to do it for you, especially in, in the generation behind, you know, before, after me. They want microwave mentality. It's like push a button and something happens. You have to take a stand. No one else can do it for you. You have to fight and get back what you want. You are where you are because of the choices that you make. Marty used to always say that, and I hated that, because like, well, that's not true, Marty. I don't want to be like this, but I, it's true. If you think about it, you are where you are in your circumstances, in your mental capacity or what you think or your faith is because of the choices that you've made. I've learned many, many things in the past three and a half years. Have I failed? Oh, lots of times. I've failed so many tests in these three and a half years. I am not perfect. There's been many battles that I've lost on these three and a half years, and I look back and like, oh, God, why? One instance, even I'll just tell you this instance, and I'll get into the details of what happened with him. But when he had brain surgery, well, when he first had the stroke, and yes, they, and they took him to brain surgery. You know, I called on my friends, I called my pastor friend, Marty knows everybody, everybody in San Antonio, everybody, and they all were coming to the hospital and. You know, I remember reading about people and women of faith who it's like when something happens, they're all, you know, prayer circle, praying, singing kumbaya, pouring, you know, pouring down the heavens with powerful prayers and all that. I didn't do that. I, I just sat there praying to myself, waiting for Marty, and I look back and I think, Marmogene, you're such a failure. <laughs> you should have. You know, been praying. You should have been doing this. You should have been doing that. And I didn't. And I felt... Missed opportunity, but God in his faithfulness, he didn't care, he knew what was in my heart. So what I'm saying is I have failed many times, so don't think because you have failed or you didn't do what you thought you were supposed to do or what you thought other people said they did, whether they really did it or not, you know, could be true or not true, who knows. People wanna make themselves look good. Don't compare yourself to other people. God will meet you where you are. He knew what was going on, he knew what was in my heart. I didn't have to impress God. I didn't have to impress the people that were there. God was with me. He was with Marty. It's all okay. So I had to get over that little hurdle of self-infliction on myself, of being like, what's the matter with you? You're a pastor's wife. You yourself are ordained pastor, ordained pastor. You should not be, but I did. And so I had to forgive myself for that. Your circumstance is not your story. Your circumstance is not your story. Your story is the journey you're walking through in your circumstance. You're walking through your valley. Psalms 23.4 says, though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil. It doesn't say you're walking through the valley of death. It says you're walking through the shadow of the valley of death, not the valley of death itself. It's just a shadow. It's just a shadow. You'll get through this. You're walking through, it means you're getting through the other side. When you walk through something, you go through it. You don't stay in it. And you've heard this preaching many times, so I don't need to dwell on it. You're not in it. You're coming out somewhere on the other side. You're walking through, through the door, through the other side. Although at times it feels like you're stuck in the middle and you're never going to come out and you're stuck in quicksand. And it's just pulling you deeper and deeper and deeper into whatever circumstance you're going through. I've learned that I'm weaker than I thought I was. I thought I was strong. My parents divorced when I was young, and I was raised by a single mom. And my mom, um, she didn't have her. She didn't. She only went to like third grade, fifth grade of school. I, my, I'm a coal miner's daughter from West Virginia, so she didn't go to school. My dad didn't go to school, um, so she had to go get her GED when I was in high school, and she later became a nurse. She went to the nursing school. But I thought that I was stronger than I was, because she taught me to be strong, to be a strong woman, blah, blah, blah. But I found out I need people <laughs> when I went through this. I'm like, I need people to help me. My husband's not here to help me. When, when we've been married 41 years, but when this happened, it was 38 years. And it's like, he has always put me on a pedestal. He's always taken care of me. He never wanted to get married until God just somehow brought us together. It's another story, it's in my book. When you read my book, you'll read this whole love story. And people have told me, I really love the way you put that in the beginning because now even though I know you, I feel like I really know you and Marty now. So you need to get the book when it comes out. (laughs) I don't have a title yet. But I thought I was stronger, but I wasn't. I was weaker than I thought. But I also learned that I was stronger than I thought I was, much stronger. I had to become a different person. I had to let that strong side of me come out. I had to be outspoken and take charge of my husband's medical care when the doctors were saying, do this, do that. And I had to, I don't like conflict. I don't like, I just, I'm a steady, my personality is steady. I don't like changes, I don't like any of that stuff. But I had to take control because there was no one else there. I have no family here, Marty's family's here, but they couldn't come. Um, I was here on my own, just by myself. It's like, God, I only had God to rely on, no one else. I mean, literally, there was no one else to help me but me. Our son, like I said, he was in military training. Uh, Josh, our oldest, he had just, he was getting ready to go on a missions trip. I told him, just go, you'll be fine, your dad will be fine, just go, and I'll, I'll get into that. So I had to really rely on God. I had to make life and death decisions on Marty. When he had the surgery, they they took me into this room, they said, here, sign these papers, this is what we're gonna do, and I couldn't, it was so dark, was, he was on operating table, they, they took me in there. Uh, it, it, it was really dark except for the lights on the operating table and these little pin lights, and he said, here, sign these papers. I, I didn't even know what I was signing. It was so dark. I didn't have my glasses. I'm like, I hope I'm doing the right thing. God, I don't even know I'm doing. It, it, and I'll explain to you that. So I had to make all these decisions all the time. I had, to be, um, I had to face life and death situations with Marty. I had to go out and get a job for the first time at 61 years old. <laughs> I had to get a job. I've been in the ministry my whole life. I met Marty when I was 20. We got married when I was 20, Marty was 21. I'm 61 now. And i have been in the ministry. I never had to really go out and get a job. At 61 years old and being in the ministry, what skills do you have? Pray for people, I, I don't know. What do you put on your resume? <laughs> I could pray in the spirit. I could lay hands on the sick. I can cast out demons. <laughs> what do you put on a resume? I don't know. And if I did need something, Marty knows how to do all that stuff for me. But he wasn't there. He just wasn't there to help me. I had to do this on my own. And so I had to go out and get a job. And that was really hard. So I've been working for almost a year now. And so now I work 11 hours a day, four days a week, though, praise God. So Saturday, Friday, Saturday night, that was last night before last, my days run together because I work different schedules. Every two weeks they change. So I work weekends and different things. So I get home at seven o'clock at night. I leave seven in the morning, get to seven home at night, seven o'clock in the evening. So I got home Saturday night, Friday night, Saturday, whatever day it was, <laughs> Saturday night. Had all my clothes packed, jumped in the car and we drove down here, got here at nine o'clock. Friday, the night before, this must be a good service. I came home from work at seven o'clock, wasn't feeling well. I said, I don't feel good, blah, blah, blah. End up in the ER, Friday night, the night before I came here. <laughs> Everything's okay. I'm okay. They took care of everything, but I'm like, oh my gosh, what's happening? So, but everything's good. So I had to become this different person. I had to just like, I, you know, and this sounds really bad, but just hear it the way I'm saying it. Take it the way I'm saying it. Don't put anything else in there. It would have been, not that it would, it would have been different had he died and passed away. Do you understand? Because then, I could sort of like just go on and just take care of me. Just worry about me. Does that make sense? Don't take that in a bad way. You understand, right, Marty? Okay. okay. As long as you understand, that's all it can They don't matter. But when someone is dependent on me, my husband, now to take care of us, because there's no more finances, we were missionaries for 11 years. We're urban missionaries in San Antonio, so that's, we never got a paycheck for 11 years. We just got whatever finances came in. Well, when he had the stroke, that stuff stopped. So, okay, who's gonna take care of us? Me, that's who. So I had to get a job to support us. So, oh man, this has been some journey, I'm telling you. (laughs) It's been a journey. A little bit about Marty. Marty has worked as a Fortune 500 companies as a trainer. He has, and will be again, a motivational speaker. He was vice president of Motivational Productions. He was a children's pastor, a youth pastor, a senior pastor. He wrote a workbook for the English professors at UTSA for the creative writing. He wrote their manual, my husband, for the English professors. He was the founder and president of Ethnos Missions. And that was what I was talking about. We were missionaries for 11 years on the west side of San Antonio with over 500 children. And our oldest son has taken over the ministry and he's taken over our church as well and running that. And then on November 30th, uh, 2015 is when our lives changed. <clears throat> Marty's very healthy. The doctors to this day do not know why he had such a massive stroke. He's never drank, never smoked, um, didn't have high blood pressure, didn't have diabetes, didn't, nothing. Very, very active. Very active. You know, rode his bicycle all the time, we went walking, swimming, very active, just very active. His doctors looked at him and said, you're healthier than I am. Look at you. I'm like, I know. And they would just tell me this stuff all the time. So we were getting ready to go to work. Our daughter-in-law was living with us. She just had our little baby, our, our grandson, our fifth grandson. And um, her husband, my, my son was away in military training in another state. He came downstairs, he was talking to us. We were getting ready to go to the kids' club. He fixed himself a sandwich. About 20 minutes later, I went upstairs, and I said, Marty, are you ready to go? He didn't answer me, so I turned to look at him, and he just didn't look right. He leaned his head up against the wall, and he started sliding down the wall. So I ran, and I grabbed him. I laid him down on the floor. I knew instantly it was like the Holy Spirit just told me he's having a stroke. I ran down the hallway to my son's room. I bust through the door. I said, John, go take care of your dad. He's having a stroke. John's in shock, and he runs into his dad's side. I run downstairs to get my phone because I left it downstairs. They were busy taking out carpet and putting tile in the floor. And so I had to jump. They moved all the furniture out, so I had to climb up couches and all kinds of things just to get to my phone. Got to my phone, called 911. They came. The fire department got there first. And um, they were asking a ton of questions. And I kept saying, where's the ambulance? Where's the ambulance? Because it was only four miles away. And I kept thinking, what's taking so long? And they said, oh, they're on another call. You have to wait for another ambulance. And I'm like, what do you mean he's on another call? they ain't got to get here. Because I knew that every minute, every second counts with a stroke. And I found out that every minute, without oxygen going to your brain, two million brain cells die. Every minute, two million brain cells die. Every hour without treatment, the brain loses as many neurons or as many cells as it does in an average three and a half years. So every hour, he was losing three and a half years of his brain. It was deteriorating before our eyes. I kept waiting and waiting for the ambulance. So I laid down on the floor. I came back upstairs. My, our son, John, was laying on the floor next to his dad, holding him and singing over him. He was our praise and worship leader, and he was singing over his dad, and he told me later he thought he was holding his dad for the last time. He thought he was dying. Marty was just staring into space. He was just, I could see him just deteriorating, getting worse and worse, and I laid next to him on the, on the bathroom floor, and I said, Marty, it's okay. You're having a stroke. You'll be all right. I'm here with you. The ambulance is on its way. The ambulance families get there. They ask tons and tons of more questions. I called my brother-in-law, who was EMT, retired EMT, and I was telling him what was happening. He said, did they put on oxygen? And I said, no. And he said, tell them to put on oxygen. So I told him. And he said, it's not going to help. And I said, put on the oxygen. So he put the oxygen on. And so they asked more questions. I'm thinking, oh, his brain is dying. Would you, just, If I could have put him in the car myself, I would have taken him myself. But he's too heavy, and I, can't t- I couldn't do it. I kept thinking, my God, his brain is dying. Do you understand what is happening? So they finally put him in this special chair get him down the steps, at the bottom of the steps because his brain was just going crazy. He starts throwing up. And so they stopped to the clean. I said, just leave it, leave it, just go, go. Put him in the ambulance. So they get him in the ambulance. I think, oh great, now we're finally on our way. But no, as to protocol, when they bring you out of the house or wherever you are and they put you in the ambulance because they've moved you and blah, 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 they have to reassess you again do all the stuff all over, take your blood pressure, do all this stuff, and I'm thinking, more brain cells, more brain cells, you know, they're just hurry, we're only like 10 minutes away from the from the hospital, so finally I get an ambulance with them, we go to the hospital, they um, do some tests, CT scans and all kinds of stuff, and, and said, yes, he has a massive stroke, he's got a blood clot, it's like uh, in his cerebral artery. This is the artery, it goes up through your neck and then it branches off into three parts of your, oh, three parts of your brain, the, the front, the middle, and the back. Marty's was right there, so it was cutting off the oxygen, usually to get it in one place. His was in the front, the middle, and the back, so it was his whole left side of his brain was, was dying. So they gave him this, it's a medicine, it's called TPA. You have like a three hour window to get in there to get it, to make it work. So they, they gave it to him, he had like a, he was there an hour and a half, two hour and a half to get to the hospital finally. So they gave him the TPA, they were pushing it through the IV, hurry, hurry, pushing, pushing, pushing through. At that time, he seemed to be a little bit responsive. His eyes were open. Uh, we were talking to him. He seemed to understand. They had an ambulance waiting for us to take us to a larger hospital, at Methodist, downtown, um, to have brain surgery. <clears throat> Praise God, there was a nurse there. She said, before we left, she said, grab my hand. So she grabbed me and Marty hand. She us let's pray. And so she prayed for us. A nurse prayed for us in the emergency room. Got in the ambulance, went to the next hospital, took us straight from the ambulance right into that that operating room where I told you about they told me what they were going to do it's a uh, it's a like a, a wire mesh and they go up through his groin and it goes up into his brain to it has a little catcher thing on it and it catches the, it, it pulls out the uh, remaining blood clots so it went up through up into his brain and they, they were pulling out blood clots it was like a two and a half hour surgery well the ones that he was having up front they couldn't reach that little catcher thing wouldn't reach up there And so he was still having like many strokes. And unfortunately, up there's where your speech comes from. So they couldn't get the ones to his speech. Long story short, he was in ICU. I went in to see him, he's he's on life support. He was on life support for two weeks. They kept telling me he's not gonna live. If he does, he'll never be the same. He, um, because he, they gave him the TPA, which breaks up the blood clots. And then he had the brain surgery because they had to go up in there. It made, him, it made his brain swell. So his brain was swelling in his, in his head. And when it gets to a certain point, like a seven, or like a 10, it's like that's very, very dangerous. That's when they start talking about decompression, like where they cut out a piece of your skull so your brain has some room to uh, swell and not compress your brain down. So he's got to a 17. And uh, one of our dear friends is a neurologist, <clears throat> and he knew this neurologist that was taking care of Marty. So I'd ask him every day, well, tell me, layman turn, what do he say, you know? And, and I asked him one day, I said, what do you think when you first saw Marty's MRI and his CT scans? He said, I didn't think he was gonna make it. And that was my dear friend telling me that, that he didn't think Marty was gonna live because his brain was so swollen. So I asked the doctor, I said, well, at what point do you think about decompression? You know, he's at a 17. <laughs> and so he said, well, because Marty's been so responsive that, you know, we're not gonna do that because that has a lot of, problems with itself. You know, you can get infection in your brain and all that because your skull has gone. And so he said, because he's been responsive, um, we're not going to do that. And so (laughs) this one little cute story, he was like, this one doctor, which I didn't like, he was a critical care doctor, and I'll tell you about him, but I didn't like him. He's always coming in and telling me all these negative things, like Marty's not going to live and he's not going to do this and he's not going to do that. I'm like, well, I don't like you saying all that stuff about him. So you stop saying all that negative stuff. And if you want to talk negative, and when the nurses come in for for a nurse change for their shift change you go out in the hallway and you talk to him. i do not want him i don't want any of that negative talk because marty would get really agitated i could see him getting <laughs> agitated and stuff and so again that's where i had to rise up because i don't like conflict but i told him no more i don't no more negative talk in front of marty don't do that anymore and so but the nurse told me this one story one time marty he still hooked up the life support and all these machines and everything and and the doctor was in there and he would say well if he doesn't do something by 14 days then he never will He's just going to be a vegetable. And she said, well, he really, she, he really responds to his wife really well, and his wife is really pretty. And then Marty, he's in a coma. He opens up his eyes, and he says, uh-huh. And he <laughs> I said, I told you, he really loves his wife. He just hears my name. And anyway, so, so anyway, so we do all that. Um, Let us see where I'm at here. Um, the doctor, Okay. So no more talking, oh, and then, so Marty was getting, he was just trying to uh, pull out all his tubes. He had feeding tubes down his nose. He had the breathing tube down, you know, for life support. And he has all this stuff going on with him. And he would just start getting agitated and he would just try to pull everything out. He only has one arm that works and he was trying to pull everything out. And so finally they had to restrain him. His one little, his one, thank goodness he's left, he's left-handed because everything was paralyzed on his right side, he's left-handed, thank goodness. So they had to restrain his hands so he wouldn't keep pulling stuff out. And so when I would go in, I would go first thing in the morning, stay all day with him, and when I would leave, I could un- you know, untie his arm when, when I was in there to watch him. But then when I would leave, I'd have to tie it back up again, which that was really hard. You know, you see your husband with all these tubes and stuff, and, and his little arm, I had to tie it back down, and it was so hard. And one day, he just kept, for two hours, I fought with him. He kept trying to pull it out, kept trying to pull it out, and I was so tired of fighting with him, I just finally left. I tied his little hand back up, and I just left so I could go get some, some rest. I couldn't take it emotionally anymore. It's just too much for me, so I left. <clears throat> but all during this time, when he was in um, ICU, my daughter-in-law sent me um, this song by Christine DiMarco, It Is Well. I know it is well with my soul. <laughs> See, Marty, who cried just listening to it. I can't even listen to that song. It's been three and a half years without crying. I could barely talk about it without crying. That song became like our, our theme song, even though Marty was out of it most of the time. He was, he was in the hospital for 37 days. The whole time, he was just like this blank stare. So when he was in, in the ICU, I played that, that song over and over and over and over again. One day, me and my son were standing at the bottom of the bed, and all these alarms start going off. We were just talking real soft and all these alarms. The nurse comes running in there. She said, what y'all do to him? We're like, we didn't do anything. We're just standing. And you're like, what do you think we did? Tell him. And so we're just standing there. And she said, well, play that song you played for him. It calms him down. I was like, okay. So we would play that song for the 37 days that he was in the hospital. He was on five different floors, seven different rooms. <clears throat> Every room I took that, that song and I played it for him. The nurses, everyone that would come into the different floors and the different rooms, they would ask me, what's that song you play? That's so soothing. And I would tell them. I to hear them singing that song in the different patients' rooms. I oh, thought, God, you're so good. <laughs> that you're so good. But just like David hadn't encouraged himself, I hadn't encouraged myself because Marty couldn't encourage me. There wasn't anyone else here. My son, like I said, was, his dad was in the hospital for just a couple of days on life support, and he was going on a missions trip. And I said, no, Josh, he'll okay. he'll be okay. Just, I knew, I knew he would be, be okay, just go. Our, son, our daughter-in-law, she called the USO to get my son home. Um, my son called me and he begged to come home. And I said, no, Gabe, don't come home. If you come home now, because he was in special forces training. I said, if you come home now, this was November 30th. If you come home now, they'll only let you stay a couple of days. But if you wait till Christmas, which is like almost a month away, you can come home for two weeks. And he begged me to come home because he kept thinking, this is his last chance to see his dad before he dies. But thank goodness he trusted his mom, that his mom heard from the Lord. So he didn't come home. I told him, don't come home. He'll be okay. He'll still be here. He'll be in the hospital, but he'll be here. So he didn't come home. He came home at Christmas, and he, he got to stay his two weeks with his dad. But I had to encourage myself on the way to the hospital, and walking from the car to the hospital, I would Quote, 2 Corinthians 5-7, I walk by faith and not by sight. I walk by faith and not by sight. I walk by faith and not by by what I see or what I don't see. I walk by faith and not what I hear the doctors say and what I don't hear the doctors say. Because all they do is give you negative stuff. Because in case something does happen, they've covered their, you know, they've covered themselves. In case he should die or whatever would happen to him. So I just didn't, I just couldn't listen to him. So I had to say all that stuff. And I wouldn't let anybody go in his room and cry. I only let a very, very, I mean a very select amount of people come visit him. Some of our closest, closest friends and pastors that would come. We had from TBI, because he was the director of TBI for a couple years. I had hundreds, literally hundreds of people asking to come visit him. People from all over the world would pray for him. I couldn't even answer everything. My daughter in law took over answering all the emails and all of the Facebook. I just It was too much. I couldn't keep up. But only let just a select few and i said you cannot cry when you go in there so i would get myself prepared and get my crying out before i go into marty's room and then walk in and be strong because i didn't want him to worry about me i didn't want him to worry. oh poor i'm Jean. she's so upset blah 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 so i tried to be as strong as i could with him i put up scriptures all over his his wall i asked the tbi students and on facebook to write down your favorite healing scriptures and, and they did i got hundreds of those and i wrote them down on cards and i put them up on his up on his wall, at the, but he couldn't see, them. he's in a coma, but I put him up there anyway, and one of my favorite ones um, was, um, oh, I'll have to find that one in a minute, I'll tell you that in a minute, um, this is a really important thing, this is good for the husbands, though, you guys, you know, because even my pastor friend's wives told me that they never thought about, you know, getting into the finances or anything like that. I didn't know anything. I barely knew how to write a check, and I'm serious. He just took care of me. I stayed home and homeschooled the boys while he went out and did whatever he did, (laughs) you know, and went on mission trips. So when he had the stroke, it was like, and the 30th, so that meant you know the first of the month, and so bills were coming in and all this stuff, and so I didn't know how to do anything. So I tried to get into the bank account. I didn't know the password. I tried to pay credit cards. They wouldn't let me pay because I, I wasn't the primary holder. I didn't know the password. I'm like, I don't want to take money out. I don't want to put money in. How, what, How why can't I do this? It wouldn't help me. I said, well, so I had to go get a power of attorney because I didn't know how to do any of this stuff. So I didn't know how to get to the phone to get into the bank account, so I thought, Marty has that thumb thing, you know, how you, recognition. So I called my son and said, meet me at the hospital. I'll bring his phone. You hold up the phone and I'll put his thumb on there and see if it opens. It opened. And so we got it. So my son, thank goodness he's computer, you know, literate. So he changed all the passwords, everything, because I didn't know anything. And when everything is due, I, it, it was just a case. I mean, I was just a basket case. So we got that taken care of. So like I said, he was in the hospital for 37 days, and during that time, he really didn't know what was going on, he, he just, uh, he's come so far. When he was there, I tried to teach him how to use the button, for the, call the nurse. He didn't understand that. Even now, there's things, because he has apraxia a, a and aphasia, which is, is too long a story, but in my book, you'll learn about it. <laughs> it's from, it's a, from the brain damage. It, it's part of your speech and things. So there's certain words that he does not understand what they even mean. I have to help him understand, he doesn't understand it. And and the words are like forming his mouth and his tongue to make the sounds, like for the F sound, like for father. He doesn't know, he'll like, you know, he's trying to form, his brain doesn't tell him, so I have to show him. Put your teeth over your lip and push out air. So I have to teach him how to speak but it's not like a baby when you teach them and then they learn. Some things he does, like I love you, there's certain phrases that he learns, but other ones, I have to tell him every single time what they are because he, his brain just doesn't connect. It's like it, it died. 67% of his brain died on his left side. That's more than half of his brain. I tell him you're walking around with half a brain, Marty. You really good for half a brain first. <laughs> This was one of my favorite scriptures that said, <clears throat> um, I posted it up on his wall, Psalms 41, and we worked with the poor all the time. So it said, Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers Marty. The Lord protects Marty and keeps Marty alive. You do not give Marty up to the will of his enemies. The Lord sustains Marty on his sickbed, and in Marty's illness, you restore him to full health. And so I quote that all the time over him. He was, um, like I said, he didn't know how to call the doctor. He didn't know how to call the nurse, so they... He wore like diapers, depends, in the hospital because he didn't, he just go to bed, he didn't know. He was like just, nothing. And he was just like, are you in there, Marty? You know, he just, nothing. And so when I was, take, after he came out of, um, out of the ICU into the progressive uh, care unit, I would go up and take care of him every day. I um, gave him his bath, I'd go in the morning, he didn't like the nurses, he would get agitated, he didn't want anybody looking at him, so I would, <laughs> I would go up and give him his bed bath every day. I would shampoo his hair. I would put lotion on him because if you have dark skin, you know, you get ashy, so you gotta put lotion on your skin. So I put lotion on him. I put a new nightgown on him. I change his diapers. I do all that stuff. And so they, if I run out, I said, well, just leave me a stack in here. If I would run out, they would go in the intercom, we need diapers in here. And I said, don't call the diapers anymore. You call them underwear, you call them pads. I don't care what you call them, but don't call them diapers. He's not wearing diapers. It's bad enough he's in here. You don't need to humiliate him by calling them diapers. And so I would just really fuss at him because it's like, this is my husband, don't talk about him like that. If that was you in there, I wouldn't talk to you like that. And so I just really, you know, they probably got tired of me in there, but I didn't really care. And um, it wasn't her husband laying in that bed. And so I wanted him to look good. So I would cut his hair, I'd cut his fingernails and toenails. You know, I did all that stuff. I was afraid to shave him, so I'd ask his uncle John to come over and and I shave. I wanted him to look like somebody loved him, like someone cared for him. I didn't want them just, this is some person laying in the bed. He's just a head in the bed and he can't do anything. I wanted him to know and everyone else to know that he had a wife that loved him and cared for him. I go home and cry my eyes out and cry myself to sleep every single night, but when I was there, I took care of him. And he never knew that I went through all this stuff. So when he I read this book to him, that's why he cries, because he's like, he's pointing to me, saying, You went through all this image. He said you went and I'm thinking, Marty, you're the one that had the stroke. But he's worried about me. He said, I'm like, yeah, Marty, you just don't remember. And I tried to protect him from all that. But now that the book's out, Marty, it's all out. <laughs> so, <laughs> as we were getting ready to leave the ICU, I, uh, I told the nurses, I said, one year from now, Marty's gonna walk through those doors. And I was like, I don't know what possessed me to say that. It's like God just, you know, you know how you spit something out of your mouth and you're like, where'd that come from? <laughs> you know, it came out so fast. I think God made me say it so fast so I wouldn't have time to think about it and not to say it. And, you know, they just looked at me like, oh, yeah, sure, okay. <laughs> <You know? laughs> A year almost to the day. It was that week. Unfortunately, we were there to visit another friend that had a stroke. He was on life support and he could speak and all. He was in the room right next door to where Marty had been. I went in there, I found the nurses. I said, do you remember us? She's like, yeah, I do. She's like, we never thought we'd see you standing here. We didn't even think you were gonna live. I'm thinking, oh, thank you for that. (laughs) You're know, taking care of me. You didn't even think he was gonna live. She went and got the other nurse and had her come down that took care of him. She walks in and she's like, We didn't think we'd ever see you stay I, like, I know, I told you one year from today when we left, Marty's going to walk through those doors. He walked through those doors. <laughs> I told those nurses, I said, I told you God was going to heal him. Now look at him. Look what God has done. So, such a testimony to those ladies. Okay, so where are we at? Okay, so now we're on our way to rehab. I'll speed us up here a little bit. So now we're on our way to rehab. We couldn't get into rehab. Oh, so much happened in between now from when he was there and rehab, oh my goodness. You have to read the book. It's like, my friends were like, I never knew any of this happened. I was like, yeah. They didn't know all the stuff that I went through. I mean, he had the stroke, but I, you know, he was conked out the whole time. He didn't know. I was going through it, not you, Marty. (laughs) so they read the book and they're like, I, I've sent parts of it to people so they could cheek it and see what they thought. Anyway, um, so um, January 5th, we make it to rehab. And um, that, that night I went and stayed, I never stayed with him in the hospital because I felt confident. People were like, why didn't you stay? I know people stay every single night. And I'm like, no, I needed some rest. I was exhausted. I would go early in the morning, take care of him, stay till late at night and go, I needed some rest. So I go home, cry myself to sleep, and get up next morning and do the whole thing all over again. So I never spent the night. And then my son, he did a couple times. Um, but he got to rehab, and the next, morning, so I stayed late because he didn't want to go to rehab. He thought I was going to take him there and leave him because he'd been in the hospital for 37 days. I had to keep reassuring, Marty, it's okay. I can't take care of you at home. I can't teach you the things that you need to know. And he would be like, he didn't want to go. And I said, it's just, you, know how, you know your kid's going to preschool? You know how hard that hurts? Imagine your husband saying that to you. And I'm just like, Marty, you can't, I can't take you home, what am I gonna do? I can't take care of you. And the, and the, and the people at the, the caseworkers, that's just a whole nother story And that. They wouldn't help me because it was the holidays and they were like, no, we can't help you. And you, no one's ever gonna take him in rehab because you don't have insurance, blah, blah, blah. And I'd be running down the hall chasing them. Well, what am I supposed to do? Just take him home, prop him up in the bed? Help me. They would not help me. They would not return my calls. They had nurse, on the floor, called, told them to come in and help me. She said, no, I'm not coming in until tomorrow. But it was too late because I needed to sign up for some special insurance. That's a whole other story. It's a whole other chapter in the book. Anyway, so we we get to rehab. Um, I stayed late that night just reassuring him i would be back tomorrow morning. So I went back the next day and I couldn't find him. I walked in the room. I'm like, where you at? And I hear this lady's voice saying, we're in here in the shower. I'm thinking, you're in the shower. He didn't even like anybody. I had to give him bed baths for 37 days because he wouldn't let the nurses do it. And they're in the shower together. <laughs> so for 37 days, he had not had a shower. But, you know, I take care of him. So I walk in there, and there's my naked husband sitting on the bench and the lady in the you know, Teaching him his, his uh, PT. Uh, helping him learn how to take a shower by himself. <laughs> well, this is going to be interesting here, Marty. You're really going to lose your dignity and your pride in here. <laughs> Because you wouldn't even go in there and let them change your beds without me being in there. So, yeah. It was an amazing place. So he, learned, he had to learn everything all over again. He didn't know how to go to the bathroom. He didn't know how to wipe himself in the bathroom. Is that the high side for me? What's that music? Oh, am I at the end? Oh, oh wow, we're not even halfway through. Anyway, so let's just get on with it. Let's just, I will jump off to this. You're much stronger than you think you are all women, all the men that are in here. And that you want to fight the good fight of faith. You want to hear those words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Your story's not over. You let faith rise up within you and fight your battle head on. Don't let the devil fill your thoughts with his thoughts. Whenever those thoughts of the devils come in, you stop them right then and there and say no. You quote back scriptures to him, whatever your circumstance is, whether it's Isaiah 54 or 17, no weapon formed against me will prosper. Philippians 2.5, I have the mind of Christ. Uh, 1 John 4.4, the, the greater is he that lives in me than he that lives in the world. And write them, your scriptures down all over the house so you can uh, quote them over and over again until they become um, real to you. And so never let the enemy tell you that you're weak, whether you're a woman, it doesn't matter, a child, it doesn't matter, that you are in control. God is in control of your life. He is the one that goes before you he's the one that fights your battle you just do your part and god will unfold the rest for you in your life just be strong be confident in the lord even if it takes a long time and it's not on your time frame and has it been hard oh gosh yes it's still hard i still cry because i want my life the way it used to be i want my husband the way he used to be I want the joy that we had together we have joy but it's different now our, 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 So much has changed, as you can tell, in our lives. But let the joy of the Lord be your strength. And know that we may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Thank you.